וגם, 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 וגם אחר אבוי אינו זוכור לטויף. לחיים, אברי. זה נייס ווי לסטארט, לא? learning about the Megillah, and I was humming the bars of V'gam Charvoyno Zohar Latoiv. We talk about Mordechai, talk about Esther, who are the hero and heroine of Purim. And somehow, according to the Talmud Yerushalmi, and this is the custom, Charvona ends up being remembered for the good. But he doesn't seem to be a very good guy. Welcome to the mystery, man. L'chaim. L'chaim, l'chaim. Today's class is once again anonymously sponsored by a dear family from our shul. As they raise their eyes heavenward and they hope for Be'ezrat Hashem, B'sorot to vote good news in their family. May Hashem help us that the Torah we study together should serve to bring them the good news that they seek. Okay, my friends. Charvona, the mystery man himself. He plays a very, very small role. He comes at the end of the seventh chapter and he says, oh, by the way, Achashverosh, do you know, Haman has erected this enormous, this, this uh, gallows, this gibbet. Did you know that? And Achashverosh says, really, did he, eh? Well, then hang him on the gallows. And all of a sudden, Chavorna gets written into history for the good. Who was this guy? Why are we still talking about him so many years later? Ah, well, in order to understand who Chavorna was, or perhaps more poignantly, what Chavorna accomplished, we really need to reframe the story a little bit. Much of what we learned yesterday will be very helpful in understanding what we talk about today. But there's also going to be a lot of new ground covered. So fasten your seatbelts as we begin a fascinating journey. The commentaries point out that Esther very carefully choreographed this moment. She made sure that there would be nobody other than herself and Achashverosh, the king and the queen present, when she corners Haman, because Haman is a very dangerous man. And a king is a very fickle individual. And Esther knows that she could influence him right now, and that could easily be thwarted, and she could end up in the crosshairs instead. Esther can't give Haman a chance to recoup, to kind of catch his balance, to reorient himself, recalibrate, save himself, and attack Esther and the Jewish people while he's doing so. So Esther's very careful. The sage, stage was set meticulously. And in this milieu, it's telling and compelling for us to take note of the fact that Haman 
when Esther makes that accusation, when she points that finger, and as we learned in the previous episode, identifies the face of evil, Haman is disoriented. The Megillah very interestingly describes this as Vahomon Niv'at. Ibn Ezra tells us that the tough is actually a part of the word. It's not modifying the word. And the precise translation of Niv'as is it's difficult. I'm, I'm actually not sure. I've, I've looked at uh, several different versions of the Megillah translated into English and each one uses different verbiage. The Kahat Haggadah, for example, says Haman was aghast. The Judaic oppressed Haggadah says Haman became terrified. The Art Scroll translation says Haman trembled in terror. And the Kol Menachem translation says he shuddered before the king. Which is it? <laughs> Maybe all of the above. Haman was terrified. He was shuddering. He was aghast. He was overwhelmed. This was a moment of full discombobulation. To appreciate exactly where we are now, I'm going to look back at verse 6, which we completed studying yesterday. But it's worthy of revisiting. It says, Vahaman nivas, Haman is terrified, shuddering, aghast, all those things. Milifnei hamelech vahamalka, from before the king and the queen. There's nobody else in the room. Haman can't be aghast. He can't be shuddering. He can't be terrified before everybody else. He can only be all of those things. The only people in the room at the time are hamelech vahamalka. Which leads us to the obvious question. Why does the Megillah have to include those words? Three words that seem entirely superfluous. It should have said, Esther accuses Haman as being the face of evil. Haman arazeh, the Haman nivas. And Haman is terrified, overwhelmed, unable to open his mouth and speak in his defense. So Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech explains it as such. He says, Haman had been raised to the heights of what you would call self-comfort. He was in his comfort zone. He was caught entirely by surprise. The queen really set him up. In Haman's mind, there is nobody more important in the entire kingdom. As he told his family, it's just I and the king and queen. I occupy a space unique to myself. Haman, feeling very, very comfortable in his position, suddenly has the ground pulled out from beneath him. He sees that the king and the queen have now both become his enemies. He sees them united. Achashverosh is enraged. Who is it? Esther is very forthright. He's the guy. Achashverosh conveniently forgot about his involvement. His anger, his frustration, 
is focused singularly on Haman. That was something that caught him totally by surprise, which was, of course, precisely Esther's intention. Haman realized that he was caught between a rock and a hard spot because the king and the queen were united against him. It's not just about two against one. It's that Haman's very skillful way of talking himself out of situations was essentially neutered because what he would have said in his defense for Ahasuerus wouldn't work for Esther. What he would have said in his defense to Esther couldn't work for Ahasuerus. The Alshech is Meirach. He develops this in a lengthy way. I'm going to direct you to the Malbim, who quotes sages from before his time, perhaps including the Alshech. And he says, he essentially boils down the Haman's challenge or problem. El HaMelech Atzmoi had Haman had to contend with Ahasuerus alone, he could have dug his way out. He could have explained himself. He could have said, I did speak slanderously about the Jews, that's true. But it's all true. And if you remember from many an episode ago, we went through the ta'anot, the complaints that Haman lodged against the Jewish people, and they weren't intrinsically untrue. We are indeed mefuzar umaforot. We are indeed scattered throughout the empire. That continues to remain the case. We do actually answer to Hashem's rules and laws first. We wouldn't drink the wine that an idolater had drank. It's all true. So Haman could have said, she says, I'm a, I'm a hater. They're horrible people. I'm a loving man. I, I just want what's good for the king. Your majesty, I only told the truth. But then he would offend Esther even more because he's undermining her people. He's saying in front of her, her nation, her people are horrible individuals. That would only make Esther angrier. So that method of defense, that line won't work. Had he been with Esther alone, he, he could have begun to plead with her. He could have said, Esther, I, I didn't realize. I didn't know this was your nation. I didn't know this was your birth origin. I didn't know. Had I known, I, I would have thought more carefully. I would have re-examined. I would have come to a different conclusion. But if you come to a different conclusion, that means your calculation was faulty to begin with. That means you were biased, skewed by hate. And you, you weren't making an honest reckoning of the circumstances as you claim to Ahasuerus. So essentially, Haman is between a rock and a, a hard place. He has a way to dig himself out with Ahasuerus alone. He has a way to kind of answer or explain himself if he was talking to Esther alone. But now that he's Milofne HaMelech Vehamalka, he is indeed tongue-tied. He doesn't have a way out. 
if he mitigates, if he kind of backtracks the evil of the Jewish people, then he's lied to Achashverosh. If he chooses to emphasize the inappropriateness of the Jewish people, he further offends and alienates Esther. Haman is lost. Esther has cornered one of the most skilled politicians in history. And she's clipped his wings. So he's shuddering in terror. He's in shock. He actually doesn't have a strategy. No clue of how to proceed. So this is the circumstance that Esther has very carefully choreographed, very carefully arranged. Now we understand why, in fact, the Torah, or the Megillah, as, as, as we say, must state, Nivas milafnei hamelech vehamalka. Let's proceed. Why didn't Esther try to defend the Jewish people? Why didn't she try to say, he said they're evil, he said they're bad? They really aren't. After all, wasn't she concerned that Achashverosh would say to Esther, well, Haman did say A, B, and C. Wouldn't it have been wise for Esther to somewhat defend her people instead of just saying, these are my nation, this is my birth? So the Rebbe once talked about this. And the Rebbe maintained at the Fabrengen and Purim in 1969, the Rebbe said that Esther, in fact, does not refute Haman's claims, the claims that we are spread and scattered, the claims that we have laws that differ from other people's, that, that we don't keep the king's laws if they contradict the Torah, that if a fly falls into a Jew's cup, he throws at the fly and drinks the wine, but if the king were to touch his wine, the Jew were to throw the wine out and not drink it. It's all true. Esther doesn't refute that. What she does refute is his conclusion. Haman's conclusion was, because these people are peculiar and different, keeping them around threatens the welfare of the king and the kingdom itself. And Esther says, I am a product of those very people. I was raised with those very customs. You mean to say that I threatened the king? Have I not turned out to be a loyal citizen? Have I not turned out to be devoted to the king? Am I faulty? You understand, Haman can't say that. Had Esther began to try and refute the claims, she actually would have given Haman an opportunity to say something in his defense. You know, then it becomes a matter of opinion. Esther thinks these are good things, and Haman could argue, well, actually, they're very bad things. Esther says, the things you said are true. Your conclusion is entirely wrong, and I am the proof. If Haman argues with that conclusion, he essentially is impaling the queen. He can't do that. He can't do that because he can't risk alienating and offending Esther. That would alienate and offend the king himself. So as the Rebbe explains it, he is an, in an impossible situation now. Esther says, precisely because 
my family, my people, observe these laws, it is because they live in this fashion that they are refined and gracious people, that we are good citizens. So Esther's argument in the end is only, they are my people. Observing Jewish law produces people like me. You don't like me? So Haman is discombobulated. At this point, he does not have a way to respond. And as Rabbeinu Shmuel de Uzida taught, it was both the words of the king and the queen that left Haman so utterly shocked and tongue-tied. This is the same king who had happily and willingly allowed Haman to plot the destruction of the Jewish people, and now he's furiously demanding the name of the villain who brought this machination to the fore. The same queen who invited Haman, who seemingly admired him so much and elevated him above all other political figures in the entire kingdom, is now calling him an evil enemy and an adversary. And Abin Shmuel says, Haman's silence is interpreted by the king as a full admission of guilt. As we say in the language of the Gemara, shtika Silence indicates admission. It was the first time in history Achashverosh saw Haman silenced. It's true, he thought. Which brings us to the next verse. So what does Haman do now? What does the king do? Hamelech, kom The king arose in his wrath, from the wine feast. Well, where else would he have been going from? And why is he rising in wrath? He goes, el ginat habitan. He goes into the orchard's garden. And then what happens? The king up and leaves. The Haman Ahmad. Haman gets up too. Suddenly, Haman regains balance. When Achashverosh leaves the room, now Haman need plead his case only before Esther. He can say whatever he wants as long as he can get Esther to retreat. So he comes before Esther, Levake shall nafshe, to plead for his life. May Esther Hamalka. He saw with the king there was no hope. He would not be able to reason with the king now. He was boxed in, because he saw that the evil had ended. As far as the king was concerned, the deal was done. So he turns around now, to his accuser, to Esther, to be mevakesh, to request and to plead for mercy. Now it's very interesting for us to note that Achashverosh's choice to get up and leave the room was unwise at best. The king was burning with anger. That says clearly in, our, in the Megillah. Hamelech kom bechamasi. The king rises in his fury. 
You'll forgive me, sorry, one second. The king rises in his fury. Why is it necessary to say he rose in his fury and to tell us that he left me Mishtehayayim? So the Megillah Starim and the, the Dina Pshara, as quoted by the Ma'amloes, explain the following. Anger and alcohol are a very dangerous mix. Anger in general is dangerous. To get angry when you're drunk is far more debilitating. He's angry and drunk. In this drunken anger, he's just looking for some air. He wants to cool off. Achashverosh is ready to explode. He figures it's not nice to lose my cool in front of the queen. It would be unrefined. Achashverosh was a vulgar man. And so he figured to be a little more gentlemanlike, he should step out and get some fresh air and try to calm himself down. Perhaps he could clear his mind of the alcohol that was befuddling and bewitching him. The Yad HaMelech says, Asa Shaleika Higgin. He did not do a wise thing. He left the queen alone with Haman. But he did so in a drunken stupor. He did so with wrath and anger. So he does the foolish thing. Instead of dealing with the circumstance directly, and he is suspicious of Haman. Remember, I shared with you a number of episodes back, Achashverosh had a nightmare. In the nightmare, Haman was trying to take his throne and steal his wife. This is what's in his mind now. But if that's in your mind, why would you leave them alone? Drunk and angry, he goes out to calm down. Then what happens? Ah, now it gets really interesting. This was, says Rav Galiko, Hashem's master plan for Haman to further incriminate himself. Haman couldn't do anything when the king and the queen were both there. But when the king is out of the equation, now he can try to win over Esther. Which will actually set him up, as we'll see. Now the Gemara tells us very interestingly that at this point, where Hamelach Kombach Hamasi, the verse goes on to say, Vahamelech Shav Miginatabisam. The king comes back from the orchard's garden. So the Gemara says, why is it that we juxtapose the king got up in his anger and went out to the orchard's garden and then he came back from the orchard's garden? He didn't go anywhere else. So the Gemara says, Haha, this is because Hashem wants us to know, and he's indicating this in his Megillah, that the Hamelach Shav Meginus Habisan Makish Shiva Lekima. The Megillah is juxtaposing 
Achashverosh's exit and Achashverosh's return. Makima Bechema, as he rose in wrath and in fury, Afshiva Bechema, he returned with the same wrath and enraged in the same fashion. Why? Naturally, going for a walk, or as they say in English, cooling his heels, would have been a smart thing to do. He should have calmed down a little. The Gemara says that's because when he went out into the orchard's garden, he suddenly, he finds Malache Hashores de Idamo Gavri. He finds angels who took the appearance of mortals. And and they are actively uprooting trees from the royal garden, ruining the royal gardens. Tachashver sees them ruining the royal gardens. He's even angrier. He says, what are you guys doing? My what are you doing? Amrulei, the Malachim said, we're hearing orders from Haman, sir. Haman said, destroy the garden. <laughs> now you can imagine how he returns. He goes back to his house. You said to destroy my garden? Now, the Ma'am Lois, quoting a number of Midrashic sources, goes even further. He says that these angels actually took the appearance, not just of mortals, but of the sons of Haman, who Ahasuerus knew well. So he walks into his royal garden, and he sees Haman's family destroying his garden. And when he asks them, what are you doing? They say, we were commanded by Haman. Haman is destroying the royal gardens. Mamloy says his anger was ratcheted up. He became even more infuriated. Now here's an interesting question that rabbis deal with. Wasn't that a lie? It's an outright lie. So the Vilna Goran seems bothered by this. And he says, yes, it was an outright lie. Haman got his own just desserts. Since Haman framed things in deceitful terms, I suppose, most importantly, coming to a deceitful or a dishonest conclusion that the Jews were dangerous for the kingdom when in fact the opposite is the case. You frame my children, I frame you. It's exactly what happened to the Pharaoh. He tried to destroy the Jewish people. Hashem says, They'll fleece Egypt instead. And he says the same thing is also true with Laban. The Vilna Goran quotes a number of verses indicating the veracity of this idea. And he says, Such is the ways of Hashem. Measure for a measure. As Rashi says, quoting our sages, when Yisro came to visit the Jewish people in the desert, he was most impressed. In the very pot they sought to cook you, they were cooked, so to speak. They threw 
the children into the river, and their armies were decimated by drowning in the river. The poetic divine justice somehow intrigued and impressed Yisro. And the Vilna Gaon says that's exactly what we see here. And you can know that that is always the case. The Medrash tells us further, the Tagum Sheni says, that when he stepped out, all of a sudden, it came back to him that this, this Haman, he's the cause of Vashti's death as well. And so, his anger began to boil, to percolate his old anger. His anger now over Haman seemingly trying to kill Esther, he said, he killed my first wife too. This guy's a monster. It's interesting to point out that according to some Medrashim, and this is how the Manas HaLevi frames it, Vashi's execution took place in that very garden. So Hashem arranges it that he steps into the very same place where Vashi was executed by the advice of Haman, and it's deja vu. He's like, he's like this is a nightmare. I can't believe what's going on. So not only is Ahasuerus not calmed by his little stroll out in the cool evening air, he returns even angrier. And here we have the perfect storm, <laughs> the perfect setup. What happens now is Haman, in turn, is, so to speak, going to be begging for his life. You know, there's a, a Medrash Kodum that says that in, it was the custom in the East that when people were overcome with anger, they would go out to the orchard and chop wood. You know, like, vent your fury. So Haman must have figured, Ahasuerus went out, perfect. He'll come back calmer. I'll find a way to get through to Esther. I'm going to dig myself out of this pickle. And then I'll figure things out, as Haman so skillfully could. But instead... It's to no avail. Ahasuerus returns, even angrier than he left. This is not good. Ah, it gets much worse. The Gemara says, Ahasuerus returned, and what does he see? He sees what we read in verse 8. The king returns from the royal orchard, El Beit Mishta, he's now back in the ballroom. Mishta Hayoyin, in the place where the wine is being consumed with a party. Vahaman Neufel Al Hamita. And Haman is now falling on the divan, on the couch that Esther is lying. Asher Esther Aleha. The Gemara says, when Haman came into the house, he saw it says, it says Neufel. Haman is falling. Falling. So the Gemara says, It shouldn't have said falling. It should say fall. Haman fell. He could only fall once. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Lazar explained, This teaches us. That an angel came and threw Haman on Esther. Which doesn't really fully explain the notion of falling. How many times could you fall? So Rashi and the Gemara explains. 
Lashon This is dynamic. It's ongoing. Nafal. He falls. He tries to straighten up. He falls on her again. Hamalach mapilei. Every time Haman straightens up, the malach throws him on Esther again. Hashverosh walks into the ballroom, and there is Haman falling again and again on Esther. Use your imagination. What does he think? The Ma'amloyas richly illustrates this business of Haman falling upon Esther. He says at this point, when Haman was falling upon Esther, Haman really was trying to plead and beg for his life. But although he was pleading and begging for his life, Haman at this point had lost his composure entirely. And so, what began as groveling actually looked like something very different. Rashi tells us, Vahaman Neufel, paraphrasing what he refers to in his commentary in the Gemara, Hamalach Doichvay, the angel is pushing him. Alhamita, Asher Esther Oleha. How did Esther get into bed? I mean, it looks really bad. This is what we would call the perfect storm. But why is Esther in bed? And if Esther's in a bed, wouldn't she look bad? So Rashi explains, Darkon Hayoleshev Besuuda Altsidon Hamitis. It was the custom of the time for them to kind of lounge in these sofa-like beds, or they call it a divan. As we said, Beresha Sefer in the beginning of the scroll. Mites Zahav Vachesef. They were beds of gold and silver. And that was not a bedroom. That was the Bnei Hamishta. That was to the people who would be there enjoying, partying, gorging on the delicacies. So such was the nature. You didn't sit as we do at a chair. You reclined. We have a similar idea when it comes to the Seder, the notion of reclining recalls the way people once used to luxuriate when they ate. So, Esther is this beautiful woman reclining on a bed or couch of sorts. Achashverosh walks in and he sees Haman falling on his queen. Imagine what he thinks. Oh, you don't have to imagine it. (laughs) He says it. Achashverosh says, when he sees this, Hagam lichbosh et hamalko imi baboyit? Do you then intend to assault the queen while I'm here? What is this lichbosh to capture or assault the queen while I'm here? The Megillah very interestingly notes, Hadavar yotza melech, these words spilled or fell from his mouth, and Haman's face is covered. What just happened? So with regard to the verbiage that's being used here, lichbosh es hamalka, lichbosh. What does it mean, lichbosh? Rashi says that in order for you to understand this statement properly, you have to vowelize it in its context. Loshen teimahu. This is not a statement. This is an incredulous statement. This is like some kind of rhetorical question. Is that what you intended to do? You intended to assault or conquer 
or ravish my queen in my house? What does lichbosh mean? Rashi says, Lanos bechazaka. It means to rape. It means to assault her. But Haman's not pummeling Esther with his fists. Like, for example, in the book of Numbers in chapter 32, when it speaks about conquering the land of Israel, it says, The land will be subdued. So Haman seems to be forcing himself on Esther. Essentially, to subdue with force. That's basically describing some kind of sexual assault, a rape. The Ibn Ezra says, It's meant precisely that way. It's uh, rape in as many words. He says, is that what you intend to do? The queen in my house? You're going to force yourself upon the queen? Is that what you wanted? Now this came forth from the mouth of the king. And now Haman, as they say, had his face covered in shame. The Mamloya says the meaning of Yotzim of Pihamelech is actually, it didn't come from Achashverosh. He says, Yotzim Pihamelech, the Mamloya here quotes Mepharshim and saying, The Melech, the king, is the king of all kings. HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Hashem put these words into Achashverosh's mouth because, in truth, it actually made no sense. To make such an accusation. It makes no sense to say that Haman was so shell-shocked, he was so terrified, he was so overwhelmed, he was so aghast, he couldn't even plead his case. Achashverosh went out to cool his heels. He knows that Achashverosh is now infuriated and enraged, so he's going to rape the queen to save himself? I mean, that makes no sense. It's insane. And so, the Mepharshim suggests, Hashem put these words in Achashverosh's mouth. And once Hashem put these words in Achashverosh's mouth, nothing could be said in his defense. So his face is covered in shame. His face is covered, so to speak. This is uh, the Mepharshim note that it was something that was done by others. Covered in shame is not just a euphemism. There was a waitstaff. And, and the waitstaff, the servants, covered his face because it was the custom of the kings that when a person fell into the king's disfavor in Persia, they would literally cover the face as if to say, this man will never see the king again. The Targum renders it, Haman's face was covered in shame, more as a euphemism. But the Ibn Ezra is very specific here. He says, Chafu Hamasharsim. The servants. Why did they cover his face? Came Mishpat Malchi Paras. That was the law. That's how Persian monarchy would work. Yechasu Avdehamelech Pnei Misha If the king was infuriated, you were done. So they cover his face. There is a fascinating suggestion by the Maimon Mordechai that Haman might actually have done all of this somewhat intentfully. Haman reasoned that at this point he was done anyway. 
being the evil man, ever scheming individual, he said, I'll take Esther down too. I'll plead with her, I'll beg, but I'll also create a suggestive situation. Ahasuerus killed his worst wife, at least his first wife, at least if I die, she goes too. Talk about diabolical and evil. Now he does plead before Esther because he still has some hope. The Maimon Mordechai says, Noshim Rachmoni is him. Women are by nature more merciful, more compassionate. And he tried to appeal to Esther's compassion. The Adam Melech says, he said to Esther, you know what it feels like. You yourself just had the crosshairs right on your temple. You were afraid of being killed. Now I'm afraid. How does that feel, hey? You got to help me out here. I didn't realize, I didn't know. If only I would have been aware that you came from the Jewish people, I never would have said this. He's making his whole argument that he only could have made in front of Esther now that Ahasuerus is out of the room. Ahasuerus comes back. He doesn't have to hear a word Haman is saying. All he sees drives him crazy, enrages him further. He blurts out, Did you mean to steal the queen from under my nose? And everybody understands Haman is done. Here's the problem. He's not done. He's not done. This is the climatic moment where things can still possibly somehow be reversed. And that, my dear friends, introduces us to Harvona. Ah, at this point... Chavona steps forward, and Chavona says, and that brings us now to the crux of today's class. Vayomer Chavona, verse 9. Who is Chavona? Echad min hasarisim, one of the king's officers. Lifnei HaMelech before the king. And he says, Gam asher You know, there's there's also there's also that gallows, that gibbet that Haman has prepared for Mordechai. So while the king is accusing the, the Haman as having his way with the queen in his palace. Charvona, one of the officers of Chamberlains of the King, says, Furthermore, Gam, Mordechai, Ashadibar Tovala Melech, Mordechai spoke well of the king, Omeid Bevet Haman. It's standing in Haman's home. Its Gavoa, its height, is 50 Amot. And the king says, Is that so? Tuluhu Alav. The order is now given. Hang him. Before we go into solving the mystery of who Harvona was and why we still think of him favorably, let's focus on the fact that Harvona didn't simply say, there is a gallows. He says, Gam this gam is a very important word. Rashi says, 
גם רוע אחרת עושו. There is yet another evil that this man seeks to perpetuate. Namely, שהיכן לתלות אוהבו של מלך. He seeks to hang the king's friend, the lover and supporter of the king. שהציל המלך מסמא מובס, the man who saved the king from being poisoned. Listen carefully. Homan has just been accused of trying to kill Queen Esther and her nation. Homan has just been accused of trying to have his way, if you will, or rape the queen under the king's nose. He's not in good shape. But the king has still not given the order. And Haman, if only he can survive the next five minutes, he'll figure out a way. This is an evil genius, a diabolical master planner. Haman can talk his way out of just about anything. He will extricate himself, and then Homan will begin to exact revenge. He's capable of whipping up a revolt against the king himself. This is the most dangerous of moments. If Homan manages to leave the room, all the bets are off the table. Harvona sealed the deal. Everything that Esther had planned could have come to naught at this point. This is, without any exaggeration, the perfectly orchestrated storm. Everything's in place. But Haman has nine lives. Who gets Ahasuerus to give the order? Who actually scores the goal? Chavon. Now, we live in Canada. People talk in terms of hockey all the time. Who's at the net? Who actually sends the puck into the net? Chavon does. Because as Rashi elucidates Chavon's statement, Rashi transcribes the words, Gam hineho eitz. It's not just, there is a gallows. Thank you, Charvona. There's a gallows. The king has many ways of getting rid of his enemies. Charvona says, this is not all. And he will deliver the final blow. He will pull the trigger. He says, this man, Homan, who has undermined the king, who seeks to destroy the king, who wants to kill his queen, who's destroying his garden, who now tried to have his way with the queen under the king's nose. Yes, your dreams are validated. He is as evil as you think he is. And, there is this gallows, Asher Asahama, that he made. He's not giving Ahasuerus advice, telling him where 
to kill Haman. Achashverosh needs no advice when it comes to execution. He does quite well all by himself. He says there's a gallows that he made for Mordechai. These words are only meaningful at this point. After Haman's infuriated, and Achashverosh is infuriated, after the queen has been put in a compromising position, when everything that we've talked about has just happened, now the slightest amount of weight can weigh the scales down. And that's exactly where Chavona enters. Delivering, delivering the devastating checkmate. He says, and, and he built a gallows for Mordechai, Ashadiber Tovalamelech. He built a gallows for Mordechai, who wanted and spoke well of the king. It's in his house. It's 50 amot high. The king hears these words. Hang him. The order is given. Now, let's try to illustrate the precise and exact words. The Lekach Tov suggests that he's not simply saying Haman didn't appreciate what Mordechai did for the king. He's insinuating that Haman wants to kill the king, the Mordechai, because he saved the king. In other words, Haman might have been able to convince the king that his plan to kill the Jews and falling on Esther's bed were somehow excusable acts. But how would he explain planning to kill the person who tried to save the king's life? Here Haman is cornered. In Achashverosh, at this point, lets the guillotine drop. Before we go on to the actual execution, to better appreciate what Harvona said, I want to share with you a selection of teachings that we find from different Mephorshim that emphasize what exactly Harvona was saying. Then we'll return to Chavona's identity and why we actually think of him in a positive fashion. Once we do that, we'll talk about the execution itself. And then we'll bring this chapter to its successful conclusion. The Ma'am Law is quoting a number of different Mepharshim, suggests that Haman was in collusion with Big Son and Seresh. He was planning to poison Achashverosh. He wanted to seize the crown. Mordechai stopped it. Haman wasn't done. There would be other attempts. But first, the person who foiled the last attempt had to be eliminated because he could foil future attempts as well. Chavona insinuated 
He's trying to eliminate the man who saved and would save you in the future. He actually wants to kill you. Now you put yourself in Achashverosh's head with all of his suspicions, with all of his concerns, with all of his worries about what Haman's trying to do, and you hear these words, and all of a sudden your mind is working. His imagination is overactive. The Monas Halevi says that the emphasis is really, a, if you call it, a study in extremes. Mordechai's intentions were to grant glory to the king, to save the king. Haman's intentions were to demote the honor of Mordechai. Mordechai sought nothing for himself. In fact, he secretly passes the information on to the king's wife, asking for nothing. And Achashverosh knows about that. Haman, on the other hand, wants to eliminate Mordechai in the most public of ways. And the Monas Halevi says something very important. The words of Harvona are, there's the eights, there is the gallows, the gibbet, that Haman has prepared, bebeit Haman. He's not taking him to court. He's not giving him due process. He's not using the laws of the land because he has no case. He's trying to create his own court, if you will, his own authority under the king's nose. He wishes to start executing his enemies and his own private compound. You know, the Gemara says that the definition, the definition of a monarch is a person who has the power over life and death. <laughs> when Queen Elizabeth was coronated, so there was a, a certain Hasidic rabbi who was a very young man at the time, I'm not going to mention his name. He was in London. And he pronounced the bracha that one recites over a king. And it is ridiculed in many circles. Because it said she's not really a queen. She doesn't, she doesn't have the power of life and death. So to the defense of this then Hasidic rabbi, they said that in some of the islands in the Caribbean, she can commute a death sentence. And as such, she kind of has the power of life and death. But that's not really what life and death means. Life and death means that you have the power and the ability to condemn somebody. Harvona says, your royal highness, do you realize what Haman's doing? He is assuming the scepter. He is behaving as if he's a monarch. He's executing enemies on his own property. Now, anybody can bring somebody to court. Anybody can frame an individual in the court system. But you're still under the sway of the king's law, the court system. When you're building sites for execution in your own palace, you have essentially taken yourself out of the king's circulation. Now, add this to all the moving pieces and try to be in Ahasuerus' shoes, what are you going to do? There's not a second to be wasted. 
your life, your crown, your empire is now hanging in balance. This man is not your friend. He's not your supporter. He is your mortal enemy. The Manasalevi says further, he doesn't even do it surreptitiously. He's brazen. He's open about it. There's this gibbet, and it's 50 amot high. It's like 75 feet high. He tells Ahasuerus, just raise your eyes up. It's a prominent feature in the Shushan skyline today. Marmon Mordechai says, your Highness, it's plain as day. You can see it yourself. In other words, says the Yismachlev, not only has he set his sights on your wife, he set his sights on your throne. He's trying to kill the very people who wish to save the king. He's together with Big Tzad and Teresh. They're all in collusion. They just want to rub Mordechai out so they can try again. And Achashverosh now thinks, if Haman walks out of here alive, I'm done. And so he gives the order. Tuluhu alav. Hang him. Now you understand and appreciate how and why Harvona's activities were so important. Why we remember Harvona Litov because everything up to this point could have gone awry. Harvona, so to speak, scores the touchdown. He brings victory home. But who is Harvona? Let's take a look in the Gemara. Rashi doesn't talk about it. It's not really relevant for the Pshat, who Charvona is. And the notion of Charvona being remembered for the Tov doesn't actually show up in the Talmud Bavli. It comes from the Talmud Yerushalmi. The Babylonian Talmud doesn't deal with it at all. In fact, from the perspective of the Babylonian Talmud, it's rather odd that we remember Charvona in a positive way. The Gemara goes on to say, Vayomer Charvona, Charvona said, and there's this gallows, this gibbet that he's built, Omer Abelazer Abelazer taught Af Charvona Russia, the Otto Eitzer. Charvona was no good guy. He was a foe. He was an enemy. He was part of the plan. Kivan Shara When he realized the wind was blowing the other way, Charvona is a political animal. He wet his finger, and he sensed a change in the climate. So he quickly jumped ship. He said, I'm not going down with this guy. I've got to save my own skin. Immediately he abandoned him. And the Gemara quotes a verse from the book of Job that speaks about evildoers who abandoned their friends. Just like that. Those who helped him in the beginning abandoned him at the end. 
How do we know that Chavod is a bad guy? What's the proof? The Marsha says, the proof? How did Chavon know exactly how tall the gallows was unless he was part of that plan in building the gallows to hang Mordechai? The Dubna Magid, in his commentary, Kol Yaakov, explains it by means of a metaphor. He says, there was a poor blind man who went begging from door to door. How did he get around if he was blind? Well, there was a kid who took him around by the hand. After he collected 30 silver pieces, the boy tricked him and stole the money from the poor beggar. The beggar who realized that he'd been robbed began to scream and yell on top of his lungs. He lamented, woe is to me, woe is to me, such and such agony, such pain. I went to gather this money and now, and now it's been stolen from me. I'm broke, I'm hopeless. The boy saw the beggar wailing and screaming. And he just couldn't take it. He couldn't hold himself back. So he said, look, look, I found the 30 silver pieces. Upon hearing this, the beggar beat the boy black and blue. And the boy said, why are you beating me? I returned your lost money. You repay my favor with this kind of abuse? The beggar said, you are the thief. And the proof? How did you know how much money was in that bag? How did you know it was 30 silver pieces? The Kolyakov says, this is what the Marashah means. Our sages knew that Charvona was part of the plan, that he worked on the gallows together with Haman because he knew exactly how tall it was. So Chavon is a really bad guy. And that's clear. Why then does the Jerusalem Talmud tell us that after reading the Megillah Amporim, we say, Order Haman, Baruch Mordechai, cursed is Haman, blessed is Mordechai. And you may also say, And that is Minhag Yisrael. That's what we do in all Jewish communities. We conclude the prayer Shoshanat Yaakov, which was recited at the end of the, of the Megillah's reading, with the words, Charvona is remembered for the good. According to the Kol Yaakov, the answer to this mystery as why we would speak of Charvona for the good, he certainly was not a secret Jew. He was no friend of Esther, certainly not a friend of Mordechai. In fact, he was a compatriot of Haman's. The Ma'am lawyers goes further to suggest that he realized things were beginning to unravel because he was with Haman when they brought him to the feast. This was his day to serve the king. He was there. In fact, quoting the Monas Halevi, the Ma'am Lois reminds us that in the beginning of the Megillah we read about Shivas Sarisei HaMelech, the seven chamberlains of the king. 
And who are they? Mahuman, Bizisa, and the third, Karvona. Each day of the week, another one of these chamberlains would serve as the chief of staff, aiding and assisting the king in everything that happened for that period of 24 hours. It would be reasonable to suggest that he didn't sleep, that the king's affairs were managed in every which way, every 24 hours, by another chamberlain. People who the king believed were loyal to him. Today was Harvona's day. He was a lover, a friend, a compatriot of Haman's. He was, along with Haman, amongst those who suggested that Vashti should be executed. However, the Manasalevi says, Harvona was a very clever fellow. He had been sent to bring Haman, and he heard the conversation that went on in Haman's house. He heard them say, Nafal tipa lefanov. The Yosef Lokach says, Zeresh, was a very smart woman, said to her husband, If this Mordechai is he's from those Jews, then you have begun a fall that cannot be reversed. Chavona took note. He listened and he watched and saw how the rest of the evening unfolded. You know, when I said they were alone with the king and the queen, it meant the formal presence. But there was waitstaff. There was a chamberlain in the background. Chavona was the chamberlain that day. He saw Esther accuse Haman. He saw the king's fury. He saw the king return even more enraged. And he heard the words of the king. Furthermore, according to the Yalkut and the Monas Halevi, at this point, Harvona started to think, if we don't get rid of Haman, he starts talking. And if he starts talking, the rest of us are going to hang too. He actually decides that it's in his best interest to make sure Haman never speaks, to make sure Haman never tells the rest of the story before he hangs as well. You see, the head upon which the crown lie was not exactly a secure one. Achashverosh was ever suspicious. He was always suspicious of the prime minister itself. In fact, he chose a foreign national. Haman is not a local. Haman's a person who he knows he can get rid of with relative ease because he is not well connected. Haman is a guy who came in really out of nowhere, much like Achashverosh. Charvona is cut from similar cloth and he's got the same worries. So Chavona, a friend of Haman's, essentially is a foe turned friend, a turncoat. 
who abandons his buddy Haman, has him executed to save his own skin. That sounds like a pretty horrible guy. Why remember him for the good? The Kol Yaakov suggests that the answer lies in the al which is actually, fascinatingly, quoted by the Ibn Ezra on the Pasuk. Charvona, says the Ibn Ezra, Yesh Omrim, the Ibn Ezra departs from Rashi's approach, does not quote the Babylonian Talmud, instead quoting the source of the al he says, Ki Eliyohu it was the prophet Elijah, Nidmelamelech Kidmusaris, who appeared in the image of the Chamberlain Chavona. It wasn't Chavona at all. This was the prophet Elijah finishing the deal. Now, on the surface, not only does this not answer the question, it makes the question much bigger. In that case, not only was Chavona a lousy guy, he didn't even do anything good. Why were remembering him for the good? Why does his memory get preserved in that fashion? The Dubna Magid, in his inimitable way of using metaphor, parable, and allegory, gives us the following little narrative. He says, a man was on his way to his son's wedding, but he didn't have a proper suit of clothes. He couldn't show up in his street clothes. So he borrowed a tuxedo from one of his neighbors. And he's planning to return it when he comes home from the wedding. He also made sure to reward the neighbor for his kindness in allowing him to wear his tux. You know, party favors, whatever else it was that was distributed. He put things into the pockets. So when he returned the wardrobe, it came with his token of thanks and appreciation. The Kol Yaakov suggests, if Elio Hanavi assumed the form, likeness, and image of Charvona, it means that Charvona must have had some goodness in him. It must have been the case. And as such, the fact that Elio Hanavi chose to impersonate Charvona tells us that even Charvona can be Zachor Latov. The Ma'am Lois elaborates on the words of the Kol Yaakov and he says the following. In the Sefer Vavi Ha'amudim, a different story or parable or metaphor is offered. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, also known as Rebbe or Rabbeinu HaKadosh, had terrible toothaches for 13 years. At the end of these 13 years, he became very upset with one of his disciples, whose name was Rabbi Chia. The Medrash tells us, Eliyohan Navi came to heal Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, and he assumed the likeness of Rabbi Chia. And he healed him. 
The next day, Rebchia came to try and to curry favor with Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Rabbi began by inquiring of his Torah teacher, his master's welfare, how is your tooth, Rebbe? If you, the Nasi, said, from the moment you put your hand to it, everything is better. Rebbe said, I wasn't here yesterday. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi understood that Eliyahu Hanavi was the one who had healed him. But the fact that he decided to assume the likeness of Rabbi Chia endeared Rabbi Chia in the eyes of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. In other words, says the Sefer Vavi Hamudim, since Elio came bidemusa shel Chavayna, since he came in the image or likeness of Chavayna, roi lezacher letayv, he's deserving of being remembered for the good. In the commentary, Ben David, he enumerates three essential contributions of Charvona, without which Achashverosh could have backtracked, retreated, and we would have had a very different ending to the story. The first is, he said to the king, Hine ha'etz muchan. He made the case. The king responded immediately, Tluhu alav. Had Haman managed to avoid the order for execution by means of influence, tremendous bribes, and political intrigue, he somehow would have mitigated his circumstances and situation and escaped. The second is Chavona didn't only say, here's the gallows. He said, a gallows that was built for a person, Ashadibar Tov Alhamelech. The third, he said, is that this would pave the way for the possibility of another attempted assassination. So, what do we learn from all this? I mean, the Dubna Magad's approaches based on a medrash, on a level of pshat. Clearly, Harvona is not an angel. Now, there are different opinions in Torah, and Elu ve'elu divrei likim chayim, all of them have truth on some level. But on a level of pshat, the Gemara is very unequivocal of who Harvona was. Most of the Mepharshim do not follow the school of thought that's advanced by the Ibn Ezra. There's a very important lesson that's being conveyed to us. And that is that regardless of what somebody's intentions or initial desires were, if somebody did good for you, you have a responsibility to be thankful. In the end, Charvona helped save our nation. And for this, he must be remembered for good. Perhaps never before in modern history have certain politicians been demonized for 
what is assumed to be nefarious intentions. But really, we have a responsibility to look at the facts on the ground and to be appreciative. Harvona was no tzaddik, but he sealed the deal. He scored the goal. He was instrumental in saving us. And so if Hashem put him in the right place at the right time, and he chose to do the right thing, even with less than noble intentions, Zohar Latov. That's something that we have to remember for the good. And with this, we conclude the seventh chapter of Megillah Esther. The king gave the order. The Targum Sheni tells us the king handed Haman into the care of Mordechai. In fact, he said to Mordechai, carry out the execution. Haman, the ever sly fellow, begins to plead with Mordechai, don't hang me. Kill me with honor and dignity. Don't do to me what happened to my grandfather. I plead with you. I beg with you. Preserve some honor. I don't want to be executed like a, a commoner. At least give me the glory of being executed as a political prisoner. You win, he says. God has made miracles like the crossing of the sea. You win. Have mercy on me. And Haman pleads and begs for mercy. He begins to weep, to wail, to plead. Mordechai has deaf ears. Why isn't Mordechai more merciful? Rebbe Levi Yitzchabar in Kedusha Slevi says, that's because Haman had every evil intention. He knew he was going to die. But he said, at least let the Jews suffer too. If I am killed as a political prisoner, it doesn't invalidate the decrees I've set in motion. If I get killed in a private manner, preserving my dignity, there's a chance the Jews can still be killed. And so Haman is unrepentant until his last breath, doing everything he can to still harm the Jewish people. Mordechai understands this very well. Mordechai understands his evil intentions. Even in his last moment of life, he can't let go of his hatred, murderous hatred for the Jewish people. And he's still thinking, how will I prosecute and kill them? And therefore Mordechai turned a deaf ear to his pleas. Not because Mordechai is trying to embody the notion of vengeance. Because Mordechai was intuitive and understood what Haman was trying to accomplish. And he wanted to totally liberate Haman's thoughts and Haman's desires.
And so verse 7 now concludes, Vayislu es Haman al ha'etz. And so Haman was hung in full view of Shushan on that very gibbet, Asher heichen Mordechai, that he prepared for Mordechai. The seventh chapter of Megillus Esther concludes with the words, V'chamas ha'melech shechocha. The king's wrath abated. The Gemara says on these words, the king's wrath abated. Why does it say, Hamas ha'melech shechocha? Shechocha seems to indicate as if there was a double event. Two different sources of anger that were quelled. It should have said, Hamas ha'melech shocha. Shachocha, a redundant expression, two, so to speak, calming, two, so to speak, moments of peace, of abation. Says the Gemara, Achas Hashem's wrath abated. And the king's wrath abated. Hamas HaMelech, the anger of the king, is to be understood in two dimensions. Va'amrila, others maintain, Achas shal Esther, Achas shal Vashti. Achashverosh burned with a vengeance. He was angry about Vashti all over again, as we mentioned. And he was angry about Esther. All of this calmed down. Purim 1971, the Rebbe concludes the Fabrengen with the following question. He says, the seventh chapter of the Haggadah has such a strange note upon which it ends. Achashverosh is angry and then his anger is quelled. Who cares? What does that have to do with the story of the Megillah? The story of the Megillah is the story of the salvation of the Jewish people. Haman, the perpetrator of mass genocide, is eliminated. It should have said, and he was hung, Allah eats, Asher Mordechai. The last three words, it seems, have nothing to do with the Megillah's narrative. Really, nothing to do with the story that this scroll communicates to us. And the Rebbe said that the answer is a very important one. Jewish people want peace, not only for themselves. When there is a spiritual victory, when the king's wrath abates, it results in a material victory, Ahasuerus' wrath abates, and then there is shalom, there is peace in the whole world. Am Yisrael wants peace. We do not seek to begin wars, chas v'shalom. We do not seek to pit nation against another nation. We seek peace. When the Jewish people are persecuted, in the end, the entire world suffers as a result. And when the Jewish people experience shalom, the whole world, my friends, will experience shalom. If only world leaders understood this. If only they could understand that their international persecution 
of the one Jewish state will never lead to peace, but quite on the contrary. And that Israel wants peace. We are predisposed by our very nature always to yearn for peace. The Hamas HaMelech Shechacha is the story of the Jewish people. Because it's not only about our own personal survival. It's not only about our national salvation. In our Weltanschauung, in our perspective, global perspective, what we seek ultimately is Hamas HaMelech Shechacha, that the wrath in our world amongst governments abates and that people will pursue a path of peace. And that's why Maimonides in his codes, when he describes the coming of Mashiach, he does not only describe a utopia, a perfect world for the Jewish people, but in fact, he says that Mashiach will come that the whole world will serve Hashem together. As it is written, and here, Maimonides quotes in the prophet Sephania, all nations will change, they will all speak in one voice, in one tongue, to serve Hashem with a common peace and purpose. And that is how the story of Ahasuerus's removing the enemy concludes. For such is the ultimate desire and the prayer of Am Yisrael that Hashem not only bring peace upon us, but upon the entire world. Mashiach is not just a time for Jewish people to prosper. It's a time for universal peace and prosperity. May we merit the coming of Mashiach speedily. And in our days, Mehera will be Amen or Amen. Thank you so much for joining. If you aren't yet subscribed, please, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Please subscribe and enable notifications. Thank you.